welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I am Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about aging. Now, I know what you're already asking yourself. What do a couple of young 20-somethings know about aging? Well, first of all, of course, we are in our mid to late 30s. Freya's like, God, why did you have to make a bad joke right off the hop? So we are at 36 and 37. But that brings us to the point of we're not talking about old age today. We're speaking about the process of aging. So in today's podcast, we'll be looking at the elements in the scope of movement, nutrition, and lifestyle that can contribute to aging with greater ease and function versus those that do not. So before we begin, as always, you can subscribe and share this podcast wherever podcasts are found, and you can go to our website at movewelldaily.com and follow us on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore eds. So in previous podcasts, we've discussed inputs and outputs and how to listen to bodily feedback. We've also noted a few times over that the feedback and the ins and outs of our lives inevitably change over time. So no matter your age, listening to your body as it changes over time and responding in kind will make it easier to manage your health and you'll carry a much lower chance of having an unexpected health event. So we work with people of all ages, from teens to people in their 80s, and it doesn't really matter what age somebody is at, a lot of people will label themselves as old. Even teens sometimes label themselves as old. So while we both know there are chronological and biological realities to age, there's also a huge subjective mentality to aging that can greatly impact the actual process of it. And so that's what we're uh, going to dive into today. Essentially, the biggest piece to really consider as we go through some of the topics today is to figure out what your perception is or what your perceptions are. So most people have some sort of preconceived notion about what age is and what aging is. And it can, of course, evolve over time based on what we're exposed to in our environment, based on, you know, when we're, we're 10 years old, we might think that our parents, if they're in their late 30s or 40s, are ancient and wonder when they're going to bite the dust, so to speak. Then we get to 25 and realize, oh yeah, that's really not that old. So it's very, it's very relative to where we're at in life. That said, there is a little bit of an obsession in some parts of society with living as long as possible. That runs in exact, like in, in opposition to the other side that thinks that there's some inevitable decline and that getting quote-unquote old, again, anybody, we've seen people who are really, really, arguably quite young, like their brains aren't done developing, call themselves old. So um, we, we also see the other side of things where people think there's an inevitable decline. So it makes us wonder, okay, well, why would we want to chase more years if everyone's also assuming that past a certain point, and again, that's completely subjective, is going to be pretty terrible. And that is also something we've spoken to in previous podcasts in context of lifespan versus health span. So the quality of your time on this planet as opposed to just amassing more quantity. And both Dane and I have had experience with somewhat uh, limited motion 
you know, things that people who are a little bit older than us at the times that we experience them might experience. So, for example, one of my big drivers in health and and in learning came from when I was 16 and told that I was told that I had osteopenia throughout a very large portion of my body, which was then relabeled as osteoporosis uh, about a year later on the next scan. And so that's a diagnosis that you don't expect to hear at that age because we don't really finish forming all of our bones <laughs> until we're in our in our 20s. Yeah. We have, you know, uh, depending on the person, maybe 25 might be a little bit closer to 30 where we're still developing bone mass. And we want to build that bone mass because from there on in, it's about maintaining it through the rest of life. So to be told that when I was really quite young, I thought I hadn't yet been given an opportunity. I've also been unwell to the point where I had to always have constant supervision, um, you know, in case I fell or blacked out. <laughs> um, I was not allowed to bathe unsupervised for the same reasons as I just listed. I was at one point not allowed to go to the washroom that was in my hospital room that was about five meters from the bed, again, for the same reasons listed before. They were afraid that if I went that far, I could run into trouble. So those are things that as a young person, you know, who was really stubborn, I fully expected to see through all of those, meaning I wasn't going to live there forever. And I don't think anybody would want to live in those states forever. Who wants to go to the washroom supervised all the time just because you're perceived as, well, it's not, it wasn't a perception, it was a reality, <laughs> as being too frail to do it yourself. Um, and, and I'm also acutely aware that some of the labels that people are given throughout their lives, if they're not fully understood, change their beliefs and behaviors around their own body. And that is where we get these notions and we think, oh, I'm you know, fragile, I don't have much potential left, whatever the narrative. And I joke sometimes that I have young outsides and old insides because quite a number of my joints have aged to a point where they resemble someone who's about 30 to 40 years older than I am. And so I do understand what it's like to have certain uh, types of pain, arthritic pain, and so on. I know when, you know, a cold front's coming in my bones in a way that I've known for, for a long, long time. Um, so there are, there are certain elements of aging that, again, are not to do with your chronological age. And granted, I have a genetic condition that has uh, definitely contributed to that. I've also learned how to manage it so that I can still do the things that I would like to do because, quite frankly, I don't see myself as being old by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that I want the last, like, however many years I have left to be with as much freedom as possible because I have experienced not being free. Uh, to do things myself, and it's not fun, I can tell you, that little sample size I got was enough to be like, I really never want to be in this situation again, and I will do whatever I can. Granted, it's not always under our control, but we do need to take into account what we can control and what we can be responsible for when we're given the opportunity. So that's sort of my background there. I, I can relate to a lot of my clients who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s and getting, you know, diagnoses around joints and stuff. And uh, I, I'm not sure that's 
a good thing or a bad thing for me, but it certainly has helped me understand and appreciate what people go through when they hear these things about their bodies and then how to interpret it as a patient of what can we do? Because there are certain things we can't change, but what can we do that's within our own control, within our own habits every single day to just improve our outcome and to live with, again, as much freedom and ease as possible within our abilities. Yeah, and, and your experience with, with aging is pretty unique uh, due, due to EDS. I think mine is pretty standard in that it was always kind of my belief growing up that, like, once you hit 30, I mean, it's all downhill. <laughs> like, so I lived my 20s basically trying to wring out as much of my body as I could without necessarily caring for what it was going to feel like or how it was going to function and move after I was, quote-unquote, over the hill, which, again, I definitely thought was at, at 30. In my 20s, I had my testosterone dropped off the map because of how I treated my body. My blood pressure was really high, which I just accepted as, you know, genetic and part of getting a little bit older. And then right at 29, 30s, when I tore my knee. And that's also when I met Freya. And she was the one that helped me kind of tweak my mindset. And I, I fully understand now how... A, 30 is not old, and B, how aging is fully within our control. Because between 30 and 37, where I'm at now, I mean, all my blood markers improved. I feel better day to day. My fitness is, is higher. Uh, it's, it, so it's, it's really all within my control. And that was not something I really ever thought was possible when I was younger, because it was just especially coming, I feel like coming from a small rural town, it was all just very much accepted that, you know, you went through this thing, you went to school and then you had a family and you had kids and then, you know, you'd have kids in a house by the time you were 30 and you would be the older generation at that point. So it was, you know, you get your beer gut and you move on with life and that's just what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just not taking care of myself in my twenties and had horrible movement mechanics. And that's what led to my knee and to my blood markers. And putting in the, you know, proper lifestyle factors and working on my nutrition and my movement totally changed my life. And that's really the message that we're speaking about today. And um, it's interesting, too, because uh, when we were in our 20s, we had a lot of peers express that they were old. And that was the reason that now they had to be on blood pressure medication. I had a friend at 23 go on it. And no one was speaking about the fact that she had been on chronic restriction diets uh, that were heavily um, pro like they were they were processed food. It was all about calorie management, but with like highly processed foods. No one spoke about that and the impact that might have. No one spoke about the fact that she was no longer exercising after having been active in high school, and and um, really with her, she didn't want to hear that. She was just like, "No, I'm old. This is just what happens. This is what happens within my family." And so that's sort of what we're we've been refuting over the course of a number of podcasts. It's just that. Don't forget about your potential because when it comes to aging at any age, we always have potential. And the, the concept there that you can look into is something as simple as neuroplasticity. Granted, it can be compromised in certain neurodegenerative diseases, um, and that's not what we're referring to. We're referring to, you know, the vast majority of, of humans who are otherwise well with their nervous system have potential within their nervous system um, to continually pick up new things, and, and just movement alone will do that. So one of the primary things that we're going to touch on as far as movement right now is uh, the idea of bone mass, muscle mass, and then uh, brain function. So 
When it comes to bone mass, I mentioned earlier that we peak our bone mass in, in our 20s, somewhere in our 20s, shortly after our brain is fully developed, in our early 20s, then we also peak out with our total bone mass. And then from there on in, we want to maintain that through the rest of life. How do we do that? Well, movement is the very simple answer. How you move, totally up to you and based on what your body's able to do, but to not move is where we'll run into issues. That's where we will develop fragility. Hand in hand with that, we also have muscle loss. So the technical term is sarcopenia. What that means, and, and that's different than atrophy. So say you go on bed rest tomorrow, no matter what your age is, and, and you don't move for the next month, you will experience a significant amount of atrophy of your muscular tissue which will make it hard to walk after that much time laying down and to do all sorts of other functions. Sarcopenia, on the other hand, is a gradual decline in muscle mass over time. So, um, you know, they argue that it sets in a little bit sooner for women than it does for men. I think there's some great research on this area. We've had uh, Professor Stu Phillips on the podcast to discuss protein consumption and how to optimize your protein consumption in order to retain as much muscle ass, mass, oh, muscle ass. <laughs> That's a good blooper right there. Let's keep that one. Muscle mass as you age. Fantastic. That was great. Um, and again, that comes down to movement. So we know that if you're somebody who is an experienced mover, let's just call it mover. So say you, you strength train, you do some cardiovascular activity, uh, or you dance or you play a sport, whatever it is. If you're very accustomed to that, you might notice that over time you don't need as high of a dose to retain your strength and retain your capacity in that. That's the way it should be with practice. Um, also because it takes you longer to recover. So we used to lift way more frequently in mm -hmm. our 20s than, than we did. And it was like there was a weird tipping point whereby all of a sudden five days a week felt horrible, but four was actually pretty great. So you have to pay attention to that. And it doesn't mean don't move on the other days. That's actually where, if you go back to some of our other podcasts, we've talked about using all of your gears. So you might've noticed that in your teens and twenties, if you were within a certain sport, you might've been really in like one gear. Hell, even into your thirties and forties. I don't know. <laughs> um, and fifties. We've, we've met people in their fifties who've done nothing but running. So we do want to integrate more variability there. That will help you take care of all of the systems in your body and ensure that it's not just your muscle mass that's being addressed and your bone mass in conjunction with one another, but also your heart and lung health too. So the, the number one thing that um, helps us with the bone mass and muscle mass is ensuring that we have some type of resistance training. And um, that can honestly be, be body weight it's all relative. stuff. It's all relative. It can be working against external loads in the gym. At the end of the day, the most successful one will be the one that you can do long-term. And if you integrate new techniques and new sports or whatever suits your body over time, you'll do really well with that. So if you hate the gym, that, but you've got five other types of movement that you love, then great, do those. But make sure that they're variable. Some of them must require that you express mobility through your joints, changes of levels. Um, they have to express strength to some capacity. You should express cardiovascular fitness, i.e. get your heart rate up at some point. That's how you know that you are expressing more of your physiology than someone who just does, does one type of fitness and maybe it's within a small range of motion and they experience nothing else. 
So those are the ways that you can take care of those systems. Those systems directly impact the third piece that I spoke about, which is your brain function. So we need movement in order to function fully. Brain and body are absolutely not disconnected. They're not separate entities. And so finding ways to move and, and integrating new ones over time is what can really help keep you alert. There are some brain maps that show, okay, well, if you do strength training, it'll help you with problem solving. If you do cardiovascular fitness, it will help you with depression and anxiety, and it can help you with creativity. If you find things that you really enjoy doing, you'll probably address that without having to strategize. But if you appreciate the strategy, then go for it. Within your movement, you should also take into account balance work and agility work. And that's something that we see is, you know, variable. Some people never, ever do it, and they are really stuck into strength training, um, but no one ever puts them on one leg at a time. That's a person that, you know, is expressing one way of moving. And they, yes, they may be strong, but they're going to have issues as far as, you know, simple agility just means like you get knocked off a curb and you don't fall. That's actually significant, especially as we age, especially if we have any sort of um, bone loss at an accelerated rate or anything like that. We want to retain that type of fitness and your balance system is supremely important. And you can start anytime. I had a 70-year-old who came in to train. He wanted to be, he was retiring from a lifetime in the OR and he wanted to be fit enough to be able to get down into a canoe, out of a canoe, and um, work around the cottage and spend most of their time there. And so we worked on that. And, you know, if you're stepping into a canoe that's already on water, so it's at a dock, you need a degree of range of motion, especially because he was quite tall and Obviously, a dock sitting below, oh, sorry, a canoe sitting below a dock is, is quite low. Um, but then it's also tippy. So he thought, I've never had good balance. I didn't have good balance as a kid. By the end of six months, it didn't take that long, but he could balance on one leg and turn his head around and essentially disrupt his system, right? He's balancing on like one leg comfortably, and he can turn his head around and change his perception so he doesn't have to like stare at one place and hold his arms out to the side. That's, that's a very flexible system. So you can start at any point in time. Um, if you're 20 and you can't do that, start there. We've met 10-year-olds who can't do that. Mm -hmm. They start there. And that's why we said we're talking about the process of aging because everyone experiences that very differently. I have met people in their 70s who I would describe as being far more um, free within their movement and their capacity and, and strong relative to their own body than some really young kids that just haven't had a the opportunity to move much in their life. So those are your, your key pieces as far as uh, why you want to address movement is it's for bone mass, muscle mass. You guys know that. Most people know that. And then heart and lung health. Well, how do you do that? As much variability as possible. Make sure that you're, you're really stressing that you're not just doing one type of movement. Move frequently. Your brain will also thank you and start anytime because it's way better to start Start, just do something. It's like that clip of surfing. You got to do something. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> yes, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, and, and then the things that you can expect is that it will take you a little longer to recover from the same sort of do dose. Excuse me. Um, aside from that, endurance might take you, if you're somebody who's accustomed to endurance, whether walking or running or cycling or swimming, if you've lost any of that capacity, 
if you're over, I, I don't know, a certain age, you may notice that it takes you a little bit longer to build it, but you can still build it. So that's, like, don't ever get discouraged if you've lost capacity in something and you think it's really hard when you start up again. Just keep at it because that consistency will see you through. And variability is going to get you through a lot of that too in terms of retention when you take time away from one particular sport. If you do some other things, uh, other ways of moving, it will help you in terms of regaining that capacity sooner. Absolutely. And uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned there, Freya, talking about uh, sarcopenia, mm-hmm. um, which is muscle wasting over time, because that takes me into the topic of metabolism. Uh, so on the nutrition side of things, uh, when a lot of clients come to me and they're, you know, whether 30, 40, 50, 60, they're worried about their metabolism being slower than it used to be. Now, I'm here to tell you that correlation does not equal causation in terms of metabolism declining with age. Uh, there was just a study that came out the other day in the journal Science, um, and although there were, it wasn't a great study, um, something it did show is that across midlife, from 30 to 60-ish, metabolism doesn't necessarily just drop off the table. Now, the problem with that study was that they balanced everything out for fat-free mass, so meaning it was based on size. So if the message I can tell you is metabolism does not decline with age, metabolism declines with body size and frailty. So if you are experiencing muscle atrophy or muscle loss over, age, over time with sarcopenia, metabolism is going to go down. So the more muscle you have and the healthier your body is, the more vibrant your metabolism is going to be. So, you know, people are always like, hey, no, I'm getting old, so metabolism is going down, and that's just not true. And so if you want a better metabolism, it's about getting healthier and doing the things Freya just said. So maintaining muscle mass over time. And again, this is all relative. If you've never, you know, lifted weights, if you've been a pretty inactive person, then doing some body weight exercise is going to be a great stimulus for you, you know? Um, If you're already at the gym, you're already probably doing a really good job of maintaining muscle mass and getting your metabolism to be as healthy as possible. Eating enough protein is another one of those things that's going to, once you've, you know, broken down the muscle through activity, you have to build it back up. And then sleeping and generally caring caring for yourself. So aging isn't inevitable, but the reality is that as we get older, physiology becomes a bit more challenging from a hormonal perspective, for example. So when we're teens, we're super active, we're running around, we're playing, we have these hormones that are driving the entire process. And then we get into our 20s, activity starts to go down, and we get into our 30s, hormones really start to dip off. So things get more challenging. So at some point, there's going to be a tipping point, and you are going to have to counterbalance that with self-care activities if you don't want your metabolism to drop off. So you can kind of think of it as things that fill your cup and build your body up versus things that drain the body. So stress drains the body, not sleeping drains the body, drinking alcohol drains the body, sitting on the couch drains the body, oddly enough. So we need to incorporate activities that actually build that up So going back again, sleeping, eating protein, staying active every day. And one thing I'll go to, which I find really interesting about society right now, is we also have activities and we incorporate daily things that we think charge our batteries, but actually drain them. So one that I'll kind of pick on here is coffee, uh, is something that people will have every day and they think it gives me energy, so it's good for me. And it it will give you 
a little energy spike, but then it's going to give you a crash and it really taxes your adrenal and your liver. And it is ultimately something that taxes your body rather than filling your cup up. Same thing with alcohol. At the end of a hard day, oh, I need to have my drink because it, yeah, it helps me relax. It's like, okay, sure. <laughs> but then, you know, it, again, it taxes the liver. It's giving you nutrient food, sorry, it gives you calories that have no nutrients in them at all. If you're having alcohol too late, it's going to bother your sleep and you're not going to get as good sleep. And then there are screens. And that's where we go for a lot of our just downtime, just looking at screens. Well, that is also exhausting the system. These are all activities that most of us do on a, alcohol maybe not, but on a daily basis, coffee, screens, and that. We need to find these other activities, as Frey mentioned, getting outside, exercising, using your body as it was intended to be used. And you can counterbalance all of these things to make sure your metabolism does not tank. So you and I and Freya and everyone is in charge of that. And it's just about making sure that you do prioritize these little things so that you don't have to worry about the what if I'm just getting too old. It's you are completely in control of these things until you're actually in your 90s and 100. <laughs> if we make it there. If we make it there, which you can. We may, we may not. Yes. Um, so, yeah, within the realm of things that are inevitable, one of the most common things that we see or hear, rather, is that people have assumed the pains that they've developed are inevitable. And granted, there's, you know, if you've, if you've had the privilege to live um, over a certain point, most of us will experience pain. And uh, to paraphrase, I think it was Kelly McGonigal, or no, that was Joy of Movement. Emotional agility author. Susan. 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 Darn. Anyway, she calls those dead people's goals in the sense that if you want to never, ever experience pain, that's that's something that a living person will never experience. So that's a, a dead person's goal. Um, Tongue-in-cheek, of course. So one of the most common things is that, you know, people will assume that they're going to experience pain as they age. And that's fair because that does tend to happen. What we do with that and how we interpret that is really important here because I've experienced pain from a very young age, starting mostly with my hips. Like I think I was under 10 and have learned, have spent the last 20 plus years trying to learn how to manage them and how to take care of them. And have experienced pain in pretty much every single joint within my being. And again, learning how to care for those joints and how to manage them and how to manage pain, how to lower my um, pain response when something does happen is, is a key piece. How to believe that I can shift through this versus thinking this is an inevitability. So that's a mindset piece to pain. And pain is understood from a neurological basis, but it is so subjective that we can't measure it. And more often than not, people use pain scales. And I have some strong opinions about the use of pain scales, particularly chronically, and I, I'm not sure that they are, I'm not sold on them being super, super helpful because of the subjective nature of pain. So if I say something's a 10 out of 10 and I deliver that in a very calm manner, someone else who thinks 10 out of 10 means like screaming your head off uh, will think that either I'm not experiencing what I just said I was experiencing or uh, assumes that like, okay, something else is, is going on here. So long story short, yes, you can experience more pain as you age, um, 
but it doesn't mean that you're kind of stuck there and relegated to it and that it's there for good and forever. It means that you probably need new management tools around those joints. And this is where I would listen to your own verbiage. I know we've mentioned this on a previous podcast. You don't have bad knees. You don't have bad hips. You don't have bad shoulders. You don't have a bad back. You don't have a bad neck. And the list could go on. None of them are bad. <laughs> Scrap that terminology if you catch yourself saying it. Instead, try to get curious about why that joint is feeling that way. So we have one set of joints. That's it for life. Uh, Skin, we can lose. My niece was very <laughs> kind to show us how she was shedding some dead skin. Um, so we can regenerate a whole lot of things. Uh, joints, they're there. We have one set of them, and it's our job to take care of them. And movement, as I mentioned previously, is going to help us take care of bones. It's going to help us take care of muscle, which helps us take care of our brain as well as our heart and our lungs. But it also helps you move fluid through joints, which helps keep these avascular, largely avascular structures healthy and full of nutrients or having nutrients pass through them. And so that is why, you know, some active people who perhaps have osteoarthritis manage them quite well. They actually are highly functional. They've got a lot of freedom and ease within their movement. They just have different rules to ensure that they're constantly um, taking care of them. And by constantly, I just mean they're making sure that every day they've integrated things that are positive for their joints because it makes them feel better and then they can go and do the things they want to do. So... With that said, sometimes when people experience pain and then label something as being either bad or good, most people use bad. No one says, I have great knees. <laughs> I wish they'd say that. When was the last time anyone <laughs> said that? Um, most people don't say that they have good whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, so if you are using that sort of verbiage, just notice it and wonder why. And then ask yourself, what do you do with that joint every day? So we've had people who say, oh, I don't want to load my legs because my knees, feet, ankles are sore, and so I've, I've just pretty much stopped doing everything. Well, if you live on Earth, then you're under gravitational pull, which means you're under load. And I'm not being facetious here. It's just that most people don't consider load that way. So they think that loading means that you've gone and, like, jumped up and down or you're running or something. If Right now, I'm sitting here, my spine is under a certain type of load, my hips and knees and ankles are under a certain type of load, and if I keep this position the majority of every single day, I am going to hurt. <laughs> it's, it's not going to feel good, because our joints, again, they need that movement, they need that variability in order to move nutrients through. So that when we start to feel stiff, and when we start to experience a little bit more in terms of like that pain that doesn't necessarily go away you know in your 20s you're kind of like oh it hurts but then it'll be gone by tomorrow when it's not really going away just ask yourself what you do with that body part on a day-to-day -day basis what you do with the whole limb and then look at how much load variability it has if there's a low load variability meaning it's predominantly sitting postures then that may be why your knees and hips hurt because those joints have way more range available to them. More importantly, they need it in order to get nutrients through and to stay as young or as healthy as possible. And it's for that reason that we've met people who are in their early 20s who describe that. And we've met people who are in their 60s describing that, which again, not old. Mm -hmm. We want to retain that motion as best as we can. 
So with that said, when you experience those things, ditch the idea that it's someone else's job to fix you. So if, you're, if your knees, say, we have some people who were super athletic when they were young, so they just assume they're going to have bad knees, and somewhere in society they were taught that eventually they're going to need them replaced. We don't actually know that to be true. That is certainly an expectation that occurred at a certain point in time. But your knees aren't bad, and you may not ever need a replacement. You might need a replacement. I don't know, but you may not. What we do also know is that activity, so fast-paced walking, um, even running, is actually safe and encouraged. Running, it depends on the person. But either way, if you're able to walk then walk. That alone is one of the most human things Mm -hmm. that we can do. If you cannot walk, there are other ways to create motion across your joints that would be beneficial. And so you cannot magically get someone else to fix you. So you have to look at how you've been using that joint. And it's, it's not, again, I've said this on previous podcasts, it's not a blame thing. It's about wherever on earth you are in your health process right now, it's your responsibility. It doesn't matter how you got there. It kind of does in terms of how you navigate away from it, but it's your responsibility. Your health is your responsibility. And if you need a team, if you need medical staff to help you, that's fine. The day-to-day stuff is your responsibility. And that's where you can go get treatment and, and that can feel, that can bring relief. And that's great. That puts you in a position if it's giving you relief to then go do the thing to take care of your joints, meaning to move. And that part's incredibly important. Some people um, will report to their doctors and get frustrated that their doctor's not immediately ordering imaging. And we've moved away from imaging as the first port of call because we know that seeing, when you use the term degeneration on imaging, is expected Mm -hmm. after a certain point in time. It's totally expected. It it, it depends on what you did when you were younger. Sure, it depends on your genetics. But using those terms is sort of inaccurate, too, because we don't know where you started. And we we don't have a really like a healthy norm. So some of the things that we were labeling as anatomical anomalies or, or pathologies or degeneration we don't know what your baseline norm was because you didn't get imaging until then. So point is, we look at function first. And so some people will get annoyed that their doctor didn't immediately order imaging. They have a process of figuring out red flags if they do need to order imaging right off the bat. Otherwise, the way that we go about changing the outcome for you is by checking in with your function. And that may mean seeing a practitioner. That may mean working with some sort of coach or movement person to help you learn what to do for that joint and learn more about how to make that joint work in the way that it was built to or in the way that you need it to. Those should probably go hand in hand. Correct. (laughs) I need my elbow to be a ball and socket joint, like a gibbon. Must be Not going to work. Um, And within that... You know, I I would encourage everyone to, if they're working with a a practitioner or a physician or anyone, um, try to ditch the fancy names. So my nephew and I were talking about concussions the other day um, in the context of, of soccer, and we touched on the impact that it has on your ocular system. And so he said, what's that? And I was pointing to my eyes as I said it. He goes, oh. I just call those your eyes. I'm like, that's what they are. So Nailed it. <laughs> in our industries, um, 
if somebody doesn't fully understand a pathology, we've touched on this before, but this happens especially, you know, as we gain years, um, we level up. If we get imaging that gives us labels, because the radiologist is going to comment on anything that they see, uh, that doesn't mean that that's what's causing your hurt. We can't see that. So hurt doesn't always equal harm. You can have pain with zero tissue damage, just as you can have tissue damage and zero pain. Um, like I know when, when certain things happen with my spine, at, at one point my arm had no sensation. There's no ability to sense pain. There was a severe nerve damage. It was very visible that there was a problem, but I could tell you that's not where I felt pain. It was like all down my spine. Um, so those two don't always line up, which is why when people push for imaging first, it can give people a belief that then modifies their behavior. So if the belief is one where we all of a sudden get these names that we don't fully understand, it can sound scary on some level, subconscious level, and then we modify our behaviors um, with the like adoption of a bit more of a fragility mindset. So that's where if you do get imaging, speak to your practitioner. What does this actually mean for me as a human being? So you said my patella tendon. Okay, tell me where that is. Okay, tell me what's it supposed to do? Oh, it takes load this way. That's what you need to understand. So just memorizing them, and we've seen that uh, weaving, our like, whole industry, there have been uh, research studies published that overdiagnosis is a real problem because you can get imaging and, and you think that those are diagnoses rather than just comments of like how something actually looks. It's like, oh, it looks degenerative. Yeah, you could also equate those to wrinkles on the inside. It's not a diseased state, but that word is often used, DDD, degenerative disc disease. That one's highly contested. I don't even want to go there right now. Don't. Point is, learn what that label actually means in layman's terms for you. So you have arthritis in your knees. Great. Did you know that working on your intrinsic foot strength and working on your hip strength can actually help you? Did you know that faster paced walking can actually help you? Building full limb strength, wearing shoes that are more towards the minimalism scale. And when I say that, most people picture those toe shoes. It's not what I mean. I just mean less supportive makes your foot work a little more, which then absorbs the forces. So now your knee doesn't have to deal with those in the same way as it did before. Making the body work a little more is what that all amounts to. That is one of the things that's proven to help with people who have things like knee osteoarthritis. So learn what the practical things are that you can do. Take away all the fancy nomenclature that intimidates you. Remember, ocular system, it's just your eyes. So that's where we need to really dive in and learn that like pain isn't a final stop and it isn't inevitable. You will experience it because you're a living organism and you are leveling up in years. That's awesome. But you have to understand that if you don't move around, you're still under load. So if you're more sedentary, you're still under load and you can experience pain. Hmm. Pain. My throat's not working very well today. Anyway. <laughs> um, you can experience pain, but it doesn't mean that that's where everything has to end, and it's not necessarily because of the years that you've been on this planet, because we work with a lot of people who are dealing with chronic pain, acute pain, and so on, and they're all ages. The point is you can move through. Again, neuroplasticity, thank goodness, is a thing that all of us have access to unless we're living in a disease degenerative state, and we really do need to tap into that and, and really 
battle the idea that movement isn't safe for us as we age, that we're fragile, that all of a sudden as soon as we experience pain we need to stop everything. Well, maybe we haven't even been doing it. Maybe we just need to redirect what we're doing and change the way we're doing things now that we're in our 50s as opposed to what served us in our 30s. That may be fine, but if you've been sedentary, pain is usually we need to we need to introduce your body with some type of movement that would be helpful for you. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how we live life now relative to, I don't know, four, even 40, 50 years ago, somebody who's 30, 35, 40 now has probably accumulated more hours sitting than somebody who is 60, 70, 80, 50 years ago, right? So again, it's just that you're always under load. Your gravity is always there. If you're in a seated position, gravity is just pulling you down from that position. So yeah, movement is necessary. And that kind of segues us very nicely into how both nutrition and movement really play in the same ballpark when it comes to pain. Because another one of the main things that people talk about is how weight gain is inevitable with age. And when it comes to pain, I mean, if you have, you know, painful knees, painful hips, painful back, if you're overweight, that's going to be one of the biggest contributors to that because you have more load being pulled down onto those joints. So if you're sitting or standing in a static position all the time and you're carrying excess weight, that is fast tracking that pain response, even if you are in your 20s or 30s. It's just, it's fast forwarded. So again, these are things that we have control over within our day-to-day activities. If you give up on movement and exercise and going outside to play when you get into your 20s, and if you just allow all your food choices to be made for you through marketing and convenience, then yeah, you're going to gain some body fat. And you probably will run into pain sooner than later. You don't have to wait until you're 50, 60, 70, 80. It's going to come at you quicker. So, and, you know, these are things that we do have agency over all the time. It's a choice. And so as we age, naturally what's happened in society is that we move less. We play less. So I ask people, when was the last time you played? Exercise is great. But if you can bring joy to movement, you're going to do it more. So I always challenge people to play, find something. I don't, it doesn't matter if you have kids or not, like find a friend, go outside, play Frisbee, play croquet, do anything that you find fun. Go play Pokemon Go, just get outside and play, do something active. We also get stressed more as we age. When we're kids, we're pretty carefree, you know, the lucky ones anyway, but we have more stress and thus we seek more comfort as we age. And food is the easiest form of comfort. You don't have to do anything. It's there. You touch a phone now. You can get food delivered at the snap of the fingers is what I just did for the people who are listening to this on just an audio. We also have more toxic load as we age, which means more lethargy, feeling slow and unmotivated. And again, if we go back to not moving enough, if you're not sweating and if you're eating a lot of processed food, for example, or drinking a lot of coffee or drinking a lot of alcohol, you know, you're not going to detoxify very well. We need the daily movement to help us sweat more and to get these toxins out of our body because they're everywhere, whether it's in our food, in our air, in the water we drink, in our body care products. This is everywhere. And, and then when we get feeling lethargic and unmotivated, then we, it perpetuates the cycle to just have bad food again and sit more. 
So we have to just be aware of these patterns and the way that life is thrown at us now. Because this also then will lead to things like sleep issues, which develop more as we get older, whether you have kids or not. Because kids, of course, they're going <laughs> to cause some sleep disturbances for most parents. But most people will have a lot of stress in their job. Toxic load, as mentioned. And this is going to drive all of these issues. So weight gain is not an inevitability. And that's a really important thing to understand. Everybody is going to have different challenges with their body weight over time. Not everyone's going to be rail thin. Some people will never be able to accomplish that based on, you know. there shouldn't be. No. <laughs> but like, again, like a lot of people want that or they want that six pack. That is not a reality for most people. Whether you, I mean, it's even going like being a C-section baby or a natural delivery can affect how you're going to carry body fat throughout life. And that's okay. But it is, again, just having agency over these things and not just giving up and accepting, you know, my metabolism is going to go down. I'm going to be fat because, you know, I'm over 25 now. You know, you, as long as you, if you believe that, then that's going to become the reality. So it's first understanding we do have agency over these things. Get that movement, that daily movement into life. Have some conscious decision making over your food choices and be nice to yourself. <laughs> and over time, you will be able to uh, like impact your, your body weight in a positive, in a positive way mm -hmm. to wherever you should be. Exactly. Um, so th another thing when it comes to movement and, and aging is figuring out where your biases lie. So what were you exposed to as a kid that made you believe certain things about age uh, as a kid, as a teen and, and so on? Uh, both of my parents right now, as we record this, are out west on hiking trips, <laughs> on multi-day hiking trips. And so I grew up with parents that did everything with us, everything active with us, uh, often better than us up until <laughs> a certain point um, when my brothers could definitely catch up and, and um go faster. But point is, I, I grew up, you know, I even have a great uncle who was a national gymnast and he did a cartwheel at 80 because somebody asked him, hey, do you think you can still do a cartwheel? So he did a cartwheel. Um, he also got a hernia from it. So <laughs> not recommended. These things happen. <laughs> I'll have to send this to him. Um, but the, the point is, and, you know, we just spent time with uh, my grandparents on the one side are 89 and 90, and um, they live independently and take care of the gardens. It's a lot of work. It's a ton of work at that, at that um, age because, you know, it just takes a lot more energy, but they do it all. And so when we've been surrounded by people in our immediate environment who are doing things like that, I grew up without this idea that 30 was like somehow an expiry date. And I had friends when I was turning 30, a lot of my friends were a bit older, um, so I, I actually wasn't there yet. But when I was in my 20s, I had some friends who were turning 30, and it was like this apocalyptic thing. And it was very interesting because I didn't understand it. And... I grew up seeing people of all ages within my family do all the athletic things, travel things that they wanted to do. So my beliefs were shaped by that in terms of potential. So even when I lost function, now we know it's what it's a consequence of with, with EDS, but even someone who's got EDS has potential. There are obviously differences. It's a massive spectrum. But... Nobody should sign off on themselves at a certain age is what I'm trying to get at. 
and perhaps you had uh, parents that that did show a, a decline in loss of movement. It doesn't mean that you have to go that way too. We have more information now on how to, you know, retain that kind of thing and find something that you enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, you can also treat it like medicine. And Daniel Lieberman, who is a... Um, I'm losing all my words right now. He's an author, but he's also a researcher, evolutionary biologist. Sorry, that was the term I was looking for. I, I like a lot of his stuff, but late, recently he wrote an article and, and said he's trying to break all these exercise myths, saying humans are inherently lazy, humans don't need to exercise. And I'm just like, you could argue that a few thousand years ago, but in our current modern-day society, when most people are are sedentary for the majority of their day, we need to find ways to interject more movement. And that doesn't mean a structured gym thing. That means like cooking your own food, cleaning you know, your dishes is more active. All of those things amount to quite a lot. Going outside and being in nature is one of the best things that you can do. You want to fix your neck and back pain? Go outside and literally look around you. <laughs> look for different shapes, leave, shapes of leaves. Look for birds. You name it. But that motion is great. And these days, so many people are walking around outside holding onto their phones. Yesterday, I saw a guy when I was on the trails running, holding onto his phone, watching something. Why do we crave all these distractions? Why on earth can we not just like move for the sake of moving because we're a human who can do that? And how cool is that? So we have to look at our preconceived notions, look at what we do, um, look at what we would like to retain doing. So if you have visions of maybe, it uh, seems silly to talk about travel right now, but you know, do it anyway. But if you have visions of traveling, say it's even to another part of the state or province or country that you live in, you have to picture, okay, if I want to go on hikes, I might have to have the capacity to lunge, to get down to the ground and back up. I might have to do that for many, many, many repetitions. So what do I need to do to make sure that my feet are healthy, that my hips can move through a full range? Maybe I want to go on a trip that requires me to carry something. So I need to have the capacity to do that. So if you picture yourself later on in life at every decade and think, what are the things that I love to do that I would like to retain or the things that maybe I'll have the time um, or abilities to do, Picture them and picture the movement demands that are required for that. When I was about 23, 22 or 23, I went on a trip to Europe and uh, with, with a couple of friends and met them in Paris. And the Paris metro systems didn't have, you know, escalators or elevators, which is totally fine. I had long staircases. One of the friends couldn't do the stairs and carry her small luggage at 23. So I had already done a lot of traveling, so I was already, I was a bit bogged down because I had to pack for multiple seasons. So I had two big bags, one on my back, one on my front, and was also carrying hers up and down the stairs. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, we made light of it, but in reflection, I was like, how, how awful is that? Like, what happens when you're 23 and you can't do that, uh, when you're otherwise healthy, otherwise fully abled, what happens later? What happens at 33, at 43, at 83? It, you know, we don't know how long we're going to live, which is fine. But the point is, if you can't do that then, like, that's just a red flag of, like, we need to try. Because if I would like to travel more and I'm going to go to countries that maybe don't have, you know, the conveniences, we've been called health nuts just for taking the stairs at one of the airports. Facts. Like, how is that a health nut? <laughs> we have 
legs that we are grateful enough to be able to use to do things like this. So why would we not do that? We're not trying to prove anything. We're just literally just taking the stairs. We've been on a plane. My legs feel like they don't belong to me. They're like jello. I would like to slowly take the stairs methodically to try to regain function of my legs. It's also a good way to social distance because nobody (laughs) takes the stairs. These days. Yeah. These days. Um, So, you know, the other point within all of this is like in terms of everything that we've been taught is um, and, and picturing what you would like to be able to do is to remember that just because you've owned something for a long time doesn't mean you know how to operate it. Take this board. Dane usually sorts it out, so I don't know how to operate it because I haven't tried to figure out how to operate it. <laughs> the same is true with your body. Just because you have a body doesn't mean you know how to operate it. And there are uh, a few things that I have very low tolerance for. Um, Pretty patient person, pretty open-minded in a lot of respects because I don't believe that we exist in extremes in black and white. But um, isms I generally don't have much tolerance for, which is fair. Most of us don't. One of them is ageism. And I've been subjected to that a lot over the course of my lifetime and career because some of the things I've gone through are things that people my age at that time shouldn't have gone through and so I I get people in older generations oh you don't know oh you'll learn when you're my age I have a hard time with that because it's not just their reflection on on me not knowing something it's more what they think of themselves it's like oh you don't understand I'm 60 my dear congratulations (laughs) so what do you think 60 means because I actually think 60 is great like I still see tons of potential but in their dialogue towards me, they've shown like, oh, okay, um, you've got an idea of what that means. So tell me what that means. Mm-hmm. Not only that, and, and don't get me wrong, wisdom is, is gathered in time. We can't fake that. But just because you've owned a pair of feet and you happen to be older than me doesn't mean you know how to operate your feet because I've spent my time studying that. So be open to learning about your body at any stage in life. I have, I I studied anatomy, we did dissections, that gave me a great understanding, or so I thought, of anatomy. And then things fell apart in my body, and I had the opportunity to learn a whole new filter of what that actually meant. So I have perpetually been learning, I'm still learning, and I will continue to learn, and I would love for people to do that too in terms of not boxing themselves in with ageism. It's a horrible thing to do. Don't tell me that you're 65 and nothing can change within your body. Your sensation, your awareness can absolutely change. Your function can change. And we've seen, um, recently somebody asked us, because of an animal flow video we had, uh, what the older generation was able to do. Because all of us are understandably in our 30s. And I've got people in their 70s who, through the process of just training and challenging them, we've taught them how to do short flows and how to do animal flow movements that are appropriate to their bodies. That's cognitive work, too. It's not just coordination and confidence and and level changes. There's a lot of cognition there, and there's research on animal flow specifically to support that. And so, again, questions like that are curious. They also show that maybe there's this preconceived notion that that activity, whatever it is, in that case, I use animal flow as an example, but we use it all the time, that activity that they just saw is not for a certain population. And in my own family units, 
unit, one unit plus all the other <laughs> branches, I have seen that to not be true. I've seen people who are doing tons of different things, mountain biking, road cycling, like it's uh, climbing, hiking trips, you name it, strength training. So uh, I think that anytime you think, oh, I'm too old for that, ask where it comes from. If it's doing, you know, back handsprings and you're 75, yeah, maybe, probably not the best. But if it's a matter of just, you know, going on on a trail and going for a nice hike or it's learning how to do a type of body weight movement or it's learning how to dance for the first time, fine, like, try it out. Even strength training, try it out. It's great for your brain. Learning new skills within movement is wonderful for cognition. So um, if you're practicing any type of, of ageism um, towards yourself or to others, uh, I mean, I would just challenge you to wonder if you hear yourself say it, ask yourself why and who taught you that because it, it was probably taught to you in society or within your family or something you read because, you know, we've seen a lot of articles. Uh, there were, we generally love The Guardian, but there was an article where this guy went on about how he started training really hard for a year, and that's what led to all this degenerative damage in his hip, and <laughs> now he has to get it replaced. I was like, buddy, that didn't happen in a year. Nope. You might have noticed it because you started training and moving, and you built awareness around it, but no. <laughs> what he described, I was like, that doesn't happen in a year. So we have, to, we have to challenge those things and just remember that we still have potential. It changes over time, for sure. But, uh, you know, even the blue zones that everyone's so obsessed with, <laughs> uh, they didn't, like, why are we looking at what they're doing in their 90s? Look what they did in their 30s, their 20s, their 40s, their mm-hmm. 50s, those years. And that's what got them through all these other decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we get older, it's easy to get, stuck into our ways and into our beliefs the older we get the longer we believe something then the more it becomes a reality that is just you know impossible to to break away from and so if there's one thing a big thing you can take away from this podcast is just having curiosity when you're when something happens to your body be curious about it don't just assume that it's something really negative and that it's irreversible and that it was going to happen anyway if you can be curious about something then you actually can do something about it so being curious is is important. And I think we should wrap this up pretty quick, but I really wanted to touch base quickly on, on food intolerances as another thing that happens to a lot of people as they age and that people just kind of accept as like a thing. As like, oh, well, I'm older now. Cool. Like I can no longer eat and whatever you call it, gluten or dairy or anything. Um, and it's, it's really unlikely that you're just going to become intolerant to something at an old age, at an old age, at 30, 40, 50, 60. It can happen, but it's generally going to be the result of something that you have control over. So go back to some of the things I mentioned previously. You know, how much stress are you under? How much antibiotic use have you had or NSAIDs like Advil? How often do you take those? How many pills do you take that might upset your gut lining? You know, do you, are you moving daily? You know, are you, are you active? Um, how processed is your diet relative to how much whole food are you eating? Do you have regular restorative sleep where you can actually clear inflammation from the body and give your gut a chance the next day? Uh, toxic load, as I mentioned before, it really it, it just adds up over time. So instead of just accepting that something is going wrong and it's irreversible, be curious about it. Um, because gut dysbiosis is a real thing, which just means your gut bugs, basically good colonies have died off and 
bad colonies are overrun. It can cause a lot of different health problems. Uh, many issues like leaky gut and IBS, they're very real, but these are all symptoms of a greater problem. They're not, I know you can diagnose them, but they're a symptom of something that is disconnected between your organism and the environment in which, in which you're living. So it's just be curious about these things when something starts to go off and don't just accept like, oh, I'm not going to eat that food anymore. I guess that's just the way it is. Say no, like what might I be doing that is not serving me and my health? Make a little change, be consistent with it and see if you can flip that script. And again, in any, you know, you might eliminate that food for a while, but we've mentioned this on previous podcasts is elimination diets should be temporary make a change to your lifestyle in some way, shape, or form to try and get your gut health a little bit better, and then reintroduce it slowly and see if you have resolved that root cause of the problem because something like that is not normal aging. It's something that can happen at any point in life, but it's not an inevitability. So again, stay curious and then make a small change, stay consistent with it, and reintroduce and, and go from there. I think that's all I had, Freya. Did you want to give the book recommendation? Yeah, so our book recommendation with this one is Successful Aging by Daniel Levitin, who speaks about multiple, multiple facets of aging, and uh, in particular, our, our notions about it, and, and people's like brains expiring at 60, because that was an age <laughs> that we decided that happened at. And so he is a neuroscientist and discusses a lot of the facets and, and challenges a lot of the beliefs that we've been taught in society. And I think it's a, it's a great read, um, no matter what your age is, because all of us are aging and it is a privilege to do so. Absolutely. And it is Susan David there you of go. Emotional Agility, which is another really great book. Because the two first names, and one was a male name, it threw, threw me off. My brain forgot it. <laughs> but Susan David, that's another great name. So to quickly recap then, uh, it really all starts with your mindset and your beliefs and your expectations. So if you expect early life decline, if you expect pain or limited movement or weight gain, then these things are probably going to happen. And because you expected them and believed that that was an inevitability, you're probably not going to try very hard to reverse that because you went into it saying, well, this is what's going to happen. So it really starts with that mentality about what are you going to normalize your life to be as you get to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 because as much as there's a lot of things we accept, you have control over a lot of your outcomes and you can slow aging and live well very, very late into life and really expand that health span relative to lifespan. So you're really in control of how you experience age and it's really how you live. So picture how you want to live and make it happen. Well, that's it for this episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. We will catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.